0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Thank you so much tonight, Lord, uh, for the privilege that it is to have the Bible and to be able to study and read and learn and try to understand, God, all that you are through what you've given us to know you through. Father, the book of Ezekiel is an incredible book. God, I pray tonight that as we just simply try to unpack it, Lord, in a very quick and and, and very even uh, not nearly as deep as I'd like to go, Lord, I, I just pray that you would really manifest yourself here tonight, that you would just show off, God, how amazing you are. Lord, that we wouldn't be able to just sit and check out, God, because we would be overwhelmed, Lord, by just how intense and how majestic and how, how powerful you are, God. And Lord, I thank you for the perspective that this book brings. I pray that it would elevate our view of how big you are, God. So just make much of yourself, uh, I pray, tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ooh, there's that rumbling again. Terrifying. All right, cool. So, um... We, we, for those of you guys that are new, and there are probably, probably only a few of you guys, but we're, we're doing this series called the, the Old Testament uh, Overview, Overview of the Old Testament. And, and really what we've been doing for the last four or five months is we've been taking one whole book of the Bible uh, every Wednesday night and just trying to digest the whole book uh, as easily as we can um, in about an hour's time. And it's been really an adventure. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you guys have been enjoying that, kind of just getting... Um, getting these overviews, there's a real specific reason why we're doing that. It's not just um, because we like having to study a ton or because, uh, yeah, it's, it's really for a specific reason, and that reason is that uh, we believe the Bible is, is better understood and, and makes a whole lot more sense when you kind of step back and, and look at it through a bigger lens, when you, when you try to take it as one story, as one narrative. And I think sometimes when we study the Bible, we can kind of get entrenched a little, get in the weeds a little, um, get too focused on one verse or one chapter or one book for too long. And sometimes we forget just how big uh, of a thing God is really doing uh, through his kingdom. And, and so, so we're trying to really, as a, at a rapid pace, move through the Old Testament, covering a lot of ground so that you guys see that this is a big story. And I'll be honest, too. There's some books in the Old Testament that I'm guessing uh, you're like me and haven't spent a lot of time in them. Um, Song of Solomon, Lamentations. There's been some pretty interesting books that I think a lot of us were probably a little bit um, confused about, and it's been really good. And tonight we're going to tackle a book that a lot of people are uh, very afraid of. Uh, it, in fact, it was there was actually a rule um, that for the Jews back uh, before. Before even Christ came, really, there was a there was a rule that you had to be thirty years old if you were a uh, a Jew to read the Book of Ezekiel, um, because they were uh, worried that it would confuse or sort of bump off track some young Jewish boy if he read Ezekiel and was extremely confused about what he was reading. So it, it is a little bit of a hard book; it's a little bit of a heavy lift. Um, but but I think that uh, that God has some some really cool stuff for us in it tonight. So Book of Ezekiel, um. The Bible contains within it lots of peaks and lots of valleys. Um, There's parts in the Bible that that you'll be reading and you're like, man, this is just a valley part of the Bible. This is like, I'm sorry, this is a peak. This is like a mountaintop piece of scripture. You're looking at Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks uh, about the theology of salvation and you just feel like you're on the Swiss Alps just looking out like, man, God, it makes so much sense and it's just so clear in what you did and what you're doing through the church and through salvation. It's just so majestic and those are those those hilltop sections of scripture. Uh, But there's also valley types of scriptures. Scriptures where you sort of look at it and you think, why is that here? And how does that make sense? And God, why would you do that? And why were you so angry? And why, why was all this judgment? And what are you talking about? it feels like you're sort of in the redwoods and just, there's no perspective. And, and, and if you were to jump into Ezekiel and just read sort of part of it and not really read the entirety of it, it might feel a little bit like a valley. Um, but really, the entirety of the book is quite the opposite. Now, I think that life is kind of the same. Life, if you guys, uh, you know, have lived at all, which all of you have, um, you know, it, it, it consists of valleys and peaks, okay, seasons where you, you sort of feel like you have a lot of transcendence, a lot of clarity about life and who you are and what you're doing, um, and then there's seasons or days or weeks or months or 10 years or whatever where you feel like you have no clarity feel like you have no vision. You feel like you have no, no understanding of what's going on. Okay? And, and it seems to me really interesting that the prophets in the Old Testament, which we've been in, studying, such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, that the prophets in the Old Testament lived in valley times, Okay, they lived in times where it, where it would seem that they, it would be really hard to have perspective. Like the most bummer times of Israel's history. Times when nations were about to invade. Times when judgment was coming. Times of starvation. Times of tribulation. Um, really bummer, sad, hard times as the majority of the prophets wrote into. But the cool thing about their books, and especially Ezekiel, is that the message actually pulls you out of that valley. Up into a peak to see a bigger picture and that was really the job of the prophets the prophets were the voice of God in the Old Testament to draw God's people out of these valleys and into a place of transcendence where they could see more clearly where they could see more fully what God was doing in the bigger picture now I don't think that the prophets even understood half of what they were writing just like we don't understand half of what they're writing But what's amazing is the clarity that these prophets were able to bring to the full picture of what God has done, is done, and will do in his kingdom. And it's absolutely amazing. So the book of Ezekiel, I'm hoping, my goal is, is will take us to a place where it really just shows off God's redemptive plan. That you could walk away and Ezekiel will be like, man... That book showed off just how big of a thing God is doing in his kingdom. Uh, I've said it before and, and I'll say it again, okay? Salvation is when your eyes are opened, but I believe sanctification, which is the process of growing as a Christian, is having your eyes widened okay? Salvation is when your eyes are open to see the truth. Sanctification is this process where God is slowly but surely widening your view to see that it's, it's, there's a whole lot more there than you realize about God, that, that what God is doing is bigger than you could possibly imagine, that when Jesus talks about the kingdom, it means so much more than you could ever possibly understand, and Ezekiel is literally this glimpse into this bigger picture that God is doing huge things, and that we get to be part of these huge things, which is really really excited. So you guys ready to get started? All right, Ezekiel. Um a little bit of context. Let's ask the question who is who is Ezekiel? We'll get to the outline in just a minute, Jesse. Who is Ezekiel? Um he's trying to rush me forward, man. What's the deal? Um it's my brother, sorry. Okay. Uh Ezekiel's context. Let's ask kind of a little bit who is who is the prophet Ezekiel? Now Ezekiel was was a young Man, when he started his, his, his um, ministry as a prophet, he was about 30 years old. And Ezekiel actually didn't do ministry in Israel. The majority of the prophets, the majority of priests, and, and, and people of notoriety and notability in the Bible lived and existed within the nation of Israel. But Ezekiel actually lived and did his ministry outside of, outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem in Babylon. Now, you guys know we've been talking over and over and over again about this, this crux moment in history for Israel called the Babylonian captivity. Where the nation Babylon came along and ripped Israel out of their homeland and took them away captive, right? Well, one thing that you may not know about that, it's really important to understanding who Ezekiel is, is that that didn't all happen in one swoop. Babylon didn't just come in and gather up every person out of Israel at once and carry them away to Babylon. That's not really how it worked. It actually happened in three different chunks. Okay, It happened in three different what's, what's called deportations of Israel. Now, the first deportation was basically this. When Babylon first conquered Jerusalem, uh, they came in and they basically gutted the nation of the most affluent, the most influential, the most intelligent, uh, the the strongest uh, people in the land. And they took them and left basically everyone else uh, back. Okay, we know that, especially from the book of Daniel. If you remember, it says that they took Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego because they were young, because they were good looking, because they were smart. And so Babylon came in and took essentially the next generation and they took all of the priests and they took all of the, the, the people of, of position and governmental authority and they, they ripped them out of the land and took them away because that benefited their country. That was the first deportation. And Ezekiel, as a young man, was part of that first deportation. He was carried away with Daniel and with Shadrach and with Meshach and Abednego. All of them were carried away in the first deportation. Now, the primary one would come later. That's the one when Israel rebels against Babylon's rule, and they come in and destroy the temple and lay waste to the city and pull everybody out in one last final swoop. But that's not when Ezekiel left. So he is actually in Babylon during the final exile, the big moment that the prophets had been speaking of uh, for so many years. Now what that tells us is that his audience is not Jerusalem. His audience is not Israel. His audience is actually the, the, the Jews that have been carried away exile. Okay? His audience are his fellow brothers and sisters that are living in Babylon, captives in a foreign land. These are the people that he's prophesying to. Now, one interesting thing about Ezekiel as well is that he, he was not a prophet by trade at first. Uh, Ezekiel actually was a priest. But here's the problem with being a priest. Uh, in order to be a priest, you have to live in Jerusalem. <laughs> and Ezekiel has been ripped away and deported out of his homeland, away from Jerusalem. So now he's basically ripped from his vocation. He's a priest that no longer can be a priest, okay? But on his 30th birthday, God literally, in chapters 1 through 3, calls Ezekiel to a new vocation. And that new vocation is to be a prophet of the living God and to prophesy this specific message to the captives of Israel. Everybody got that? Everybody tracking? This is who Ezekiel is. Uh, in chapters 1 through 3, and, and we're not going to look at it because we just don't have time, but you can take a look at it later. I'd love if you go back and read this book. Um, you know, you can read it all tonight or whatever before bed. It's only 48 chapters. Um, but uh, the, the first three chapters, when, when he's called, basically, uh, God pulls him into this vision. And in this vision, he sees uh, the Lord sitting on this throne. And it's this really bizarre picture. It's very descriptive. um, And and lots of people try to make sense of it and say that this represents that and blah, blah, blah. And we're not going to do that because I think they don't know what they're talking about. But it it basically represents God in his glory. And there's angels. And and his presence is there. And he's sort of in this glorified state. And this is the, the moment that Ezekiel is called into his ministry. It reminds me very much of Isaiah. The way that Isaiah was called. Uh, Isaiah, as we talked about recently in chapter 6 of Isaiah, was called to, to be a prophet in a moment just like this. Where God showed him his glory and he said, okay, now I want you to go and deliver uh, this message. Now, what was, the message, what was the message that Ezekiel was called to deliver? Uh, the message that Ezekiel was called to deliver was not a new one. It was not something that he was uh, trailblazing through to, to, to deliver. It was something that had been being preached by prophets for many, many years. Okay? Isaiah, who was probably the first one uh, primarily to bring this message, uh, he, he preached it about 100 years before Ezekiel even stepped onto the scene. Okay, Isaiah, a hundred years before the captivity, was saying, this is coming, this is coming, repent, repent. Uh, this, this, this moment is going to come, Israel, if you do not change your ways. Jeremiah picked up that message even before Ezekiel and was preaching that as well from Jerusalem. And here is Ezekiel again repeating this message, this message that Israel is in sin and that God is calling them back and wanting them to, to walk in repentance and change uh, their ways. The main difference between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, they, they, they were contemporaries of one another, is that Jeremiah prophesied from Jerusalem, and Ezekiel prophesied from Babylon. Okay? So, contemporaries of one another, but they had different uh, areas that they lived in. So, Ezekiel's calling was kind of a hopeless one. <laughs> Just like most of the prophets. Uh, probably, if I had to pick one job in, in the Old Testament that I would not want to be, it would be a prophet. Okay? Uh, because the reality is, is they never got, no one ever listened to him. They would deliver their message and deliver their message and deliver their message. And by the way, most of the prophets, uh, the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel, are just... Compilations of sermons, basically. Compilations of, of, of messages that were given by these prophets over, over many, many years. But no one ever heard them. No one would ever heed them. No one would ever listen to them. And Ezekiel was no different. He, he brought the truth, he prophesied, but it ultimately fell on deaf ears. And the message that he was called to bring was a message of judgment. It was a message of chastisement that God was saying, Israel, you have to change your ways or something is going to go down. You will be exiled. But it was also a message of hope. It was also a message of hope. Um, just like many of the prophets, when you get to the end of the book, you start to see a shift, and God always brings that there is hope, and there's restoration and redemption. Now, here's the part that you, you, you probably, uh, if you've read Ezekiel, you might have questions about um, Ezekiel, in particular, was called by God to display his message in really weird, bizarre, quirky, and just strange ways. okay here's some of the ways that, that specifically that Ezekiel preached his message in chapter four, uh, he actually built. A miniature siege out of figures to illustrate the siege that was happening back in Jerusalem. So he takes like these different objects and he he's in the streets and he's like acting out, you know, kind of like a little kid would with GI Joes or something. He's like acting out what would be happening or what was happening back in Jerusalem, so that the people in captivity could see what's going on. Really, really random, really interesting. Um, he was called to uh, at one point lay on his left side for three hundred and ninety days. Okay, one side for 390, like you can imagine how unevenly tanned he would be, um, you know, laying on one side. No, okay. uh, so one, 390 days on one side, 40 days on the other side. Um, God called him to do that, to, to basically show and to illustrate uh, the captivity that they were going to be in. Uh, at one point, he was called to, uh, this is awesome, uh, eat food cooked over human poop. Okay? Uh, not awesome, actually. Uh, to signify the food and the starvation that Jerusalem was going to come. Just really weird, extreme, bizarre stuff that, that God wanted him to do. Uh, in chapter 5, he, he shaved his head and his beard, which would have been disgraceful if you were a Jewish man. Uh, he burned one-third of his beard and hair. He struck one-third of it with a sword, and then the other third he threw into the wind. Um, and that was actually to signify the truth that was coming, that one-third of Jerusalem would die from disease, one-third would die from starvation, and then another third would be scattered. So you're going to read a lot of that stuff when you get into this book, and you're going to be like, why? Why are you doing that, Ezekiel? That's, that's funny. That's weird. Here's the reality, okay? It may seem bizarre to us, but it, all that this really is is sort of a street theater approach, okay? For since the beginning of mankind, people have been using the arts to try to explain uh, in different ways a reality or a truth. Okay, and when you're when you're when you're dealing with someone who's deaf, like Israel, okay, you're going to try anything and everything that you possibly can to get your message across. So he's using theatrics, he's using uh, sort of a street type of performance to try to get. Israel's attention to tell them what's going on, to communicate this message. It's all that he's doing, and it seems bizarre, and it seems extreme, but in that day, they didn't have YouTube, so you couldn't, you know, make a cool video and post it and send it out. If you wanted to get people's attention, you had to get creative back then, okay? So that's really all that's going on there. So what is the outline of the book? Um, I think I asked that in you guys' handout. We're going to put this up on the screen for you guys here. um, We're going to just split the book into three chunks. It's fairly long, so I wanted to keep it really simple. Um, Three chunks, if you want to write it down, we're going to take these one by one, and that'll be how we approach uh, the book of Ezekiel. But number one uh, is God's willingness to chastise. Okay, and that's chapters 1 through 34. Uh, And then we're going to look at uh, number two, which is God's ability to transform the hearts of men. And that's a typo. That should be 35 through 39. My bad. Uh, and then number three is God's plan for complete restoration. And that's chapters 40 through 48. So three chunks. Um, and here's what I see these three chunks of Scripture in this book sort of illustrating. Um, as I said in the beginning, I believe that Ezekiel, as if taken as a whole, really takes us up to a place where we can see more clearly God's full redemptive work. And I believe that as we look at each of these three sections, hopefully we're going to walk away being like, man, God, you are doing something so much bigger um, than we can possibly imagine. So, imagine. so let's, let's start with the first one, and that's God's willingness to chastise. And this is chapters 1 through 34. Uh, and this is really the judgment piece of the book. Okay, uh, which is the large majority uh, is basically um, Ezekiel prophesying that this judgment is coming, that this chastisement is coming, this punishment is coming. And probably the most important question you could ask um, when talking about this judgment is why is God judging them? Okay, If there's 34 chapters, essentially, of God saying, Israel, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, why is God judging Israel? Why is God going to rip them out of their homeland and put them into Babylon for seven years? Why is he going to do that? What has Israel done to merit that kind of punishment? Now, to answer this, uh, Ezekiel lays it out very vividly and very clearly. So go to chapter 16, and we're going to look at this together. Now, while you're flipping there, here's kind of to get you up to speed in, in chapter 16. Here's what, here's what God is saying through Ezekiel. He's, he's talking about Israel, and, and as he's about to tell them why he's going to judge them, he tells almost a story. And in this story, he, he says that Israel was like a baby, uh, a baby that was taken from the womb, and was not loved by its mother, but was abandoned, okay? A little baby girl. And it says that the Lord found this baby, and it's, it's a little bit gruesome, and it's a little bit vivid, uh, but it's there, okay? And the baby is, is bloodied, and it's unclean, and it's abandoned, and the umbilical cord is still there. Literally, it says that, that no one has even cared enough to try to remove that from the baby. Uh, it's just this orphaned, unloved, uncared-for baby. That's what Israel is like. And so the Lord says that he came, and he adopted this child, Israel. And he, he made that baby his own, and he cleaned it off, and he gave it a name, and, and he gave it uh, comfort, and he gave it, gave it everything that it needed, okay? And he raised this, this daughter, this Israel, up until she was of age, uh, so specifically until she was of an age to, to marry. And it says that the, uh, the, the Lord says that he adorned this daughter, Israel with jewelry, and with clothes, and with fine linen, and all of these things to to to, to show her his love, and his affection. Um, it gave her everything that she needed. So in this, this story, he, the Lord is sort of a father, but he's also sort of a husband, and it, it's every, he's everything to this daughter. Okay, he's raised her, he's given her everything. And then in, 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 in the second half of chapter 16, he starts to say, What has happened in in this story? So pick it up there uh, in verse 30. He says this about this daughter that is Israel. He says, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things and the deeds of your brazen, uh, the deeds of a brazen prostitute building your valley or your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty places in every square yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment. While no payment was given to you, therefore you were different. Now, I know this is strong language, but here's what God is saying. He's saying that you're worse, Israel, than a prostitute. And here's why. He says, because a prostitute actually does a service for a payment. But you don't even do that. He says, Israel, you actually pay your lovers to come in and please you. You actually pay them to cheat on your husband with them. He says that you're basically giving yourself away. And he says, in in, in doing so, Israel, you have played the whore. Okay, now that's strong language, but it's a strong offense. And we serve a, justice and right, a just and righteous and holy God. So when he's describing sin, he uses strong language. It's not to be perverted. It's not, it's not for the shock factor. It's the reality that this is how God sees sin. It's not rainbows and butterflies. It's not, oops, I messed up. Okay, he says, Israel, my daughter who I've raised, who I've given everything, who I've adorned, you have made yourself a whore. You've made yourself a harlot, and you're not even smart enough to charge like a prostitute. You just open the door and let anybody in so you can cheat on your husband continually over and over again. That's what you are, Israel. This is the state that I found you in. You are the scum of the earth, Israel. This is is the tone that the Lord takes. Well, what did they do that would merit that kind of language? Well, he goes on to say it in the chapter. We won't look at it. But first of all, he says, you took the ornaments that I gave you to adorn you, to make you this beautiful bride, this beautiful daughter, and you melted them down and you made them into an idol so that you could worship them instead of me. And then it gets worse. You burned your children to sacrifice them to a false god. Literally, Israel had gotten so corrupt and so wicked that they had adopted this practice from the other nations where they would sacrifice their children to the God of whomever. Sound familiar? (laughs) Sorry, I wasn't trying to go there, but we're doing the same thing with abortion. We are. We're sacrificing our kids on the altar of convenience. But that's a side note. This is what Israel was doing. They were willing at any point to sacrifice anything that God had given them to please their false, made-up gods. And the Lord looks down on it. He says, Israel, where, how, how have you come to this? And because of this, Israel, I must punish you. I must. Now, what God is, is doing... In the Babylonian exile, what he's essentially doing is he's taking Israel, his his, his child, whom he has adopted, and he's putting them in time out. He's saying, I've got to pull you out of your homeland, away from who you are, from what you know, from all that you ever uh, held dear, and I've got to rip you out of that, and I've got to put you in the corner because you cannot get what I'm trying to tell you. Now, there are times with my kids when they are so worked up, And they are so out of control. And I never believe this when you see my cute little three-year-old daughter. But she has moments okay, where she gets so out of control that I literally have to grab her and hold her and just say, you've got to stop. You're out of control. And I will not let her go. And and she hates it. But at some point, because I'm a whole lot stronger than her, she lets go. I have to do that. I have to. She's out of control. And what God is saying to Israel is, you are out of control. You're burning your kids to a false God. And he takes them and rips them out of their homeland. And he sticks them in Babylon. And he takes everything away from them that they've ever known. And he said, now do you see how detrimental the way that you're living is, Israel? It's strong words and it's strong action, but God is a strong father and strong arms that cares and loves his children. Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament, in verse 5, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Listen to this. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when proved, by, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who, the one that he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Listen to this. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The King James Version says you're a bastard. It does. If you are not chastised by the Lord, if you are not disciplined by the loving, strong hand of God who is interested in your best good, then you do not have a father. God is not disciplining Israel with his wrath. He is disciplining Israel with his love. Because he loves them, he is disciplining them. Because he loves them, he is willing to chastise them. And we read a book like this and we say, God, why were you so harsh with Israel? And it's only because we have no clue, first of all, how bad Israel was. And then second of all, because we have no clue how holy God is. His love demands that he discipline his kids. If I do not discipline my kids, I don't love them. I remember vividly uh, sitting in a juvenile hall. I would do juvenile hall church on Sundays, and I would go in and I would preach the gospel to these kids as they wore their Velcro shoes and their sweatpants, and they would stare at me like they wanted to hurt me, and I would just preach the gospel anyways. And I remember trying to explain to this, this group of kids god's uh loving affection and how he's a father and how he takes care of us and how how he he sometimes tells us no because he he knows that something is bad for us and and, and that that when when a good father says no, it means that he loves him and I'll never forget this fourteen year old girl who was in there for uh prostitution and methamphetamine and all kinds of crazy things at fourteen. She looked him in the eyes she said but I don't, even, I don't understand that. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, My, I've never had a parent tell me no on anything before. I mean, she, This girl had never been loved enough to have been told, don't go out after 10 o'clock. She'd walk the streets all night. She'd do whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted. And at 14 years old, her life was in ruins because no one had loved her enough to tell her no. Our father is a good father. And he tells us no from time to time. And we don't think about that much. But I'm thankful that he does. Because he loves us. And he cares about us. Now here's something I want to draw your attention to. God's first desire is always repentance over punishment. Always. I'm going to say that again. God's first desire is always repentance over punishment. He always wants you and is dying for you to choose him so that he doesn't have to punish. So that he doesn't have to rip that thing away from you. So that he doesn't have to allow you, God forbid, to take that thing that you think he wants so bad until it destroys you. It's his heart. Look what he says in Ezekiel 33. Verse 11. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This was prophesied, At the very after God had been pleading and pleading and pleading for hundreds and hundreds of years with Israel to obey, to serve him rather than other gods. And he's still saying, oh, Israel, please repent. I don't want to see you suffer. I don't want to see you ripped out of your homeland, but I will do it because I love you. I will do it. I will do whatever it takes At some point, God will, and look at me, okay? Be warned. At some point, God will give you what you want. And you will not like it. At some point, God will say, I can't plead with you anymore. So go, have your sin, and come back and tell me how it goes. And you will hate it. And you will be miserable. Because there is nothing there for you. You will drink from the swamp water until you are sick. You will lie with the pigs until you come running to the Father. But the good news is, is that He runs to you. He runs to you. Look at this Ezekiel 34. God is indicting the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, for being bad leaders. In in chapter 34, he's saying that that part of the reason that you have failed Israel as my child is because of your leaders. They don't care about you. They don't shepherd you. They don't love you. And he's, he's, he's basically condemning the leaders in chapters 34. And then look at what he says in verse 15. He says, but I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the slave. This is God talking. I will, I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong, and I will destroy, and I will feed them in justice. What God is saying is, he's saying, no longer Israel am I going to let you be led astray by these false leaders. Now it's time for me to step in, and I will be your shepherd. And I will come in and I will save you because I love you. And I love you more than these blind guides ever could. Does it sound familiar to you, by the way? What did Jesus say in John 10, 11? I am the good shepherd. This is what God did through Christ. He said, I will come. I will come and I will shepherd my sheep. I will come and I will save souls. I will come and I will gather my scattered people because I love them and because I'm the only one that can. That's what God did in the incarnation. That's what God did when he became a man. He said, I must step onto this earth and gather my sheep and separate the sheep from the goats because I love my sheep and my sheep know my name and they're called by my voice. Jesus was the ultimate act of God being a shepherd to his people and sending his only son into this world. This is why Hebrews talks about Jesus being the ultimate high priest, because unlike other high priests, he is perfect and relatable. Because Jesus literally became a man so that he can relate with you in your suffering, relate with you in your struggling. So when you feel weak and you feel depressed and you feel like you're struggling and having a hard time, God isn't sitting in heaven waiting to judge you and smack you upside the head. He's saying, I know what that feels like because I became Christ and I took on more pain than you could ever imagine for you. And I'm a relatable God now. Our God doesn't sit in heaven and look. Our God got off his throne and put on flesh and became a man so that he could be beaten and broken and rejected and suffer and be the perfect high priest to you and I, perfectly relatable in every way, so that when we pray to him, he knows. He knows. He knows what you're feeling. He's felt it. You think you're rejected? You think you're suffering? You think you're depressed? Jesus' sweat drops of blood and fear. That God's wrath would cream him for you. You don't think he can relate with what you're feeling? You don't think he can relate with your anxieties? You don't think he can relate with your struggles? God steps into that with you. Now, here's the beauty, okay? Here's the beauty of what happens here. With Israel, in a moment's time, God goes from punishing Israel... to entering into that punishment with Israel. Here's what I mean by that. When you read the book of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or any of these prophets, it's amazing. God, God is warning and he's warning and he's warning. And then finally, the moment comes. The moment of punishment comes and the, and the exile happens. And then all of a sudden, God's like, everything God is saying changes from this punishment to this, come here. When I punish my daughter or my son, Okay, uh, there's a very crucial moment where after I've punished them and, and they have submitted, okay, I, I hold them close because I need them to know that I'm not mad at them. I'm not frustrated with them. I'm not, I'm not angry with them. I might be frustrated, but I'm not angry with them, right? I love them, and in fact, I love them so much that that's why I had to punish them. And so I hold them, and I hug them, and I tell them that I love them, and I'll pray for them, and I send them on their way, because they need to know that that punishment had nothing to do with me not loving them. right? And this is exactly what happens in the book of Ezekiel. God punishes his people because he loves them, but then he reminds them that they are his kids. He still loves them. It's not condemnation. It's not wrath. It's him being a dad. And every time he brings up judgment, he always brings it back around to remind them of the covenant that was made with them. Don't forget, Israel. You're my kid. You're not going to not be my kid. There's nothing Israel could have done that would remove them from being God's kid. And listen to me, if you are saved, there's nothing that you can do to remove you from being God's kid. He will go after you. He will. And it's going to hurt, but he's going to go after you. I truly believe that. And you can run into this world and you can go back to your own vomit like the Bible says. And I guarantee you, God will find you and he will pull you back. And the farther you run, the harder it's going to snap when you come back. It's the reality because he's a good father and he has made covenant with you. And that's good news because of the covenant God has made with you. He doesn't condemn you. He saves you. He pulls you through it. And this is how we ought to handle sin with one another, isn't it? Not condemning one another for sin, but like God, the father saying, I'm going to enter into that with you. I'm going to get you through this. That's why we have the church. So that when one is struggling, we say, we'll enter into that with you and we'll make sure that you get through this. Rather than shun you, rather than condemn you, rather than judge you, we're in this together because that's how God deals with sin for us. He came into it with us through the cross. He took it on for us on the cross. So that's the first piece of, Ezekiel, God's willingness to chastise, and the biggest one. But God is not so nearsighted, okay? Listen, uh, by way of segue, God is not so nearsighted that he thinks that, that simply chastisement is going to fix his people. Right? I mean, I, I could can, I can punish my child, but is that going to change their heart? No. It might address some of the external behaviors, but the heart is much deeper. The heart is much harder to access. The heart is much harder to aim at, and that's why we often ignore it. We'd rather just fix the behavior. But God is not so shallow and nearsighted that in his plan for Israel, he, he just thinks, so, well, I'll just punish them. I'll, I'll send them off to exile for their 70-year spanking, and then when they come back, everything will be fine. That's not what he did because God's not stupid. He knows that the issue is not surface as deep. The issue with Israel is not behavior modification. It's their hearts. Their heart is dead. And it needs to be fixed. It needs to be healed. Now, much of the Bible, uh, especially in the Old Testament, is God speaking through the prophets, like even like Moses and through the law, and Israel not listening, not hearing, not hearing. And there's this word in the Old Testament I want you guys to learn with me. Let's see if we can say it together. It's Shema. Can we say that? Shema. A little bit louder. Shema. Okay, this is a Hebrew word, and you guys have heard this before. It's, it's referred to sometimes as the great Shema in the Old Testament. It's that piece of scripture that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, um, and you are to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great Shema. It's sort of this all encompassing section of scripture that is sort of supposed to, to embody all of, of what God's law was and what he said. It's Shema. But here's the interesting part about Shema, okay? The word in Hebrew is not so simple and one dimensional like our word here. The word means here, by the way. It means to hear, okay? That's why it's here, O Israel. In our vocabulary, when you say here, it means that sound waves go into your ears, uh, or maybe it means sound waves go into your ears and you discern what you're hearing. Okay, so if I say, yeah, I heard what you said, what I'm saying is, yeah, I knew what you were saying and I understood it. But the word shema in Israel to hear, or Jewish to hear, is three-dimensional. It's not only that sound waves go into your ears, it's not only that you comprehend what you're hearing, but it's also that you obey. That is what hear or shema means in Hebrew. So when God says, shema, oh Israel, hear, oh Israel, it's not just saying, hear what I'm saying, understand what I'm saying. He's saying, obey what I'm saying, do what I'm saying. And that's really important to understand as a Christian because that's what God has called Christians to, right? Not just to hear a truth, but to be changed by it, to act on it, to make it affect your life in a way that changes you. Now, my question is, why does no amount of hearing by the prophets ever change Israel? Even the exile, even that big 70-year spanking couldn't seem to change Israel, They still lived, in in many ways, in a state of blindness and rebellion towards God. And if God knew that Israel wasn't going to hear, why did he keep sending prophets? (laughs) Why did he send prophet after prophet after prophet to to tell Israel when he knew they weren't going to hear anyways? I believe the reason is because God was aiming for something deeper, and, and he was trying to point to a deeper need. Now, take your Bibles and go to Ezekiel 37 uh, really quickly. And this is one of the, the, really the famous chapters in the book of Ezekiel. And I think it's really the heartbeat of this book. Um, Ezekiel 37. You guys know the story, okay? I'm just going to read the first little bit of it, okay? It says, in Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. Okay, so Ezekiel's having a vision might be reality, might be a dream. I don't know. doesn't really matter. The the point, the picture is clear. He takes him to this valley, and it says it was full of bones. Okay, random, weird. If the Lord sort of came and swooped you and took you to some weird valley, and there was just a bunch of dead bones, you'd be a little freaked out. Okay, Um, verse 2, he led me around among them And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Okay, now what's happening here? What's happening is that God has led Ezekiel up to to see the embodiment of what his ministry really is. Because here is Ezekiel year after year after year proclaiming truth after truth. He's, he's, he's speaking, and Israel is not shemaing. They're not hearing and obeying. They're just simply taking in this truth, but it's not affecting them. And God says, okay, Ezekiel, let me take you up and show you what, what this looks like physically. What it looks like is you prophesying to a bunch of dead bones. And that's what Israel is. They're dead. They have no life. They have no ability to comprehend what you're saying. They have no ability to to respond to what you're saying. And then he tells Ezekiel, he says, hey, go prophesy to him. What do you think will happen? Ezekiel's response is, Lord, you know. (laughs) Same thing that's been happening for the last however many years that I've been prophesying in Israel. It's a dead audience. They don't care. They don't listen. They're not affected by this truth. Okay? It's essentially uh, what's happening there. Now, notice, too, that he calls him son of man. In verse 3, he says, And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? When he calls him son of man, it's sort of God almost poking at the fact that he's merely a man. It's like, hey, human, can you make these bones come to life? And obviously, Ezekiel goes, uh, no, I can't do it. Any more than I can make Israel stink and hear my message, right? Can't do it. But then something happens. He tells them, He said, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know, in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so now he commands him to do so. And look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause you breath, or cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there was sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. (laughs) Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. What is happening here? What is happening here is is that the Lord is, first of all, reminding Ezekiel that, hey, uh, unless I breathe on these bones, you're not going to have any luck. So you can preach until you're blue in the face. And trust me, I've experienced this as a pastor. (laughs) I have had times preaching where I am literally pouring my guts out about the gospel and people are staring at me, thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. Or many Sundays where I'm blue in the face trying to get people to worship Jesus and they're looking at me, thinking about... How many donuts did they just eat? You know, I mean, just dry bones, right? And, And literally, God is saying, Ezekiel, you cannot bring life to these, Israel. You can't do it. Only I can do it. But even more than that, what God is doing here is he's pointing forward to something bigger that God is going to do. And that is this event, see if you can figure out what it is, when God will actually take this dead people and he'll pour his spirit out on them. And all of the sudden things will start to happen. God is giving Ezekiel an opportunity to see what he will do at Pentecost, what he will do when God pours out his spirit because of what Christ has done. And the Holy Spirit comes in and actually changes the deepest parts of man's heart in a systemic way through the new birth. And life can come. God is saying that, yeah, I know Israel's not gonna listen to you, but there'll come a time will come a time where a Messiah will come, and that Messiah will pay for the sin of the world and will access my breath, my Holy Spirit, to come into the world in a way that's never been seen before. And, and, and through that, I will create my church. How exciting is that? But he's also drawing back to something. This is important. He's drawing back to something um, Another time in the Bible, if you remember, in Genesis chapter one, what did God do? He took dirt. Okay, now what is dirt? It's nothing. There's no life in it, unless there's a worm in there. Okay, just dirt, right? He takes dirt, which is couldn't be a more useless substance, and couples that dirt with his own life, breathed into it. Specifically, God breathed into that dirt and made that dirt into a man. Adam. Adam was, uh, and don't take this, and I'm not saying Adam was God, okay, but God breathed some of himself into Adam, made him in his image, and so Adam was part dirt, part God, okay. He's not God, but God made him in his image. He poured some of himself into him. He imprinted himself into Adam, and that was who Adam was, That's why we have a body, and that's why we have a soul, okay? We're not just physical beings. We're more than that. God created us that way. He poured his spirit into us. But what happened in Genesis chapter 3, the fall? Man sinned, and God separated man from his spirit. And what's left? Dirt, right? Dirt. And part of the curse was that man would work in the dirt, and he would be dissatisfied by the dirt, And that life would be basically one big, dirty mess. Just slaving away, day after day. The imagery here is pointing back to that. That just like God breathed life into Adam, he again will breathe life into his people, and these dry bones will become real flesh through regeneration. It's amazing. He says this in Ezekiel 36, 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own hand. It couldn't be more, into your own land. It couldn't be more clear than this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from your idols and I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What God has done through the Holy Spirit is he has allowed you by the Spirit to finally have the ability to shema. You couldn't do it before. The Holy Spirit gives you the ability to not only hear, but to do Because the law is not just written on some scroll or some tablet. It is now written and imprinted on your heart. And as new covenant Christians, we have been reborn with new natures. And we now have the ability to shema God's word in a way that we never have. Because just as the spirit was taken from Adam, it has been re-breathed into us by the new Adam who is Christ. And we have newness of life in the Holy Spirit. Guys, look at me. That's really good news. (laughs) You have the Holy Spirit that has taken you as a pile of dry bones and made you into a living, breathing servant of God who is imprinted on your heart, has passions for him that were planted there by him. You know what this means? It means that you can never sin again in a way that you'll ever enjoy. Or you can sin. (laughs) But you got a new heart. And that heart was not designed for that sin. So you will never enjoy it like you used to because you're regenerate. You know what that means? It means that you have been given new desires that you don't even know are there. You have been given God's heart in a way that you will be unpacking for the rest of your life and into eternity because you have been reborn, because his spirit has been breathed into you. It means that you live for God out of love rather than guilt. It means that you obey and worship God because you want to, not because you have to. That's what it is to be regenerate. That's what it is to be born again. That's what it is to not be a pile of dry bones. I'm so thankful for that. So thankful for that. This is the litmus test for how we know whether we're saved. Are you born again? It's the same thing that Nicodemus came to Jesus inquiring. And, and Jesus immediately said, you must be born again. You're a pile of dry bones. God cannot access your heart through external things, Nicodemus. So guess what? You need a new one. You've got to be reborn, man. How can I do that? He missed it, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. It's called regeneration. And what regeneration does widens out our scope of how big God's redemptive plan is. See, he doesn't just love us enough to punish us because he's a good father and restores. He doesn't just walk through punishment with us. He also gives us a stinking new heart so we can love him more. He gives us 20 bucks and says, go get me a present. He does it for us. I pull my hair out sometimes on Sunday morning when I don't see people worshiping Jesus because I'm like, "What are you doing? You got the Holy Spirit in you for crying out loud! Worship God! How can you not? You know what that cost, Jesus, to be able to worship? We take it for granted. Like, big deal. We do this every Sunday." Man, we have access to the Spirit of God. His manifest presence is ever waiting for us to access it so we could be with Him. For crying out loud, it fires me up. Lastly, chapter 40 through 48. How does the book of Ezekiel end? And it does. It gets better. Okay, <laughs> let's throw that, that outline up again one more time, Jesse. Uh, it, it's not only that he 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 he's willing to chastise us. It's not only that he's able to transform our hearts, but lastly, he is, his plan is complete restoration. Complete restoration. Not, not just, okay, now you're saved, you know, go have a, have a fun Christian life. But he's doing something bigger than that. He's doing something bigger than your Christian life. He's making an eternal kingdom. And we don't have time to look at it because I'm out of time, but I'm gonna tell you, and you gotta go read it, that the end of Ezekiel is this picture that God shows Ezekiel of a new temple. Do you know what the new temple is? We are. And out of this new temple... He takes Ezekiel over to the eastern side and the eastern gate. And out of this new temple, which is the church, flows this river. And it's not a creek. It's not a stream. It's a stinking river. It's deep. And this river flows. And you know why it says it flows out of the east? For a few reasons. One, because it's going to hit the Dead Sea. What was dead is going to be made alive. Two, because that, for them, was the rest of the world. The east, the undiscovered parts. This river is going to flow out of this new temple and out of this river will come all of this greenery and all of this shrubbery and all of this life and there will be fish and there will be people fishing and there will be all of this joy and satisfaction. Why is this in the book? Because God is doing something that we have not yet seen. God has created a new temple out of you and I in hopes that out of that new temple would flow a river. What is that river? Every time you do kingdom work, every time you bring justice and God's rule and reign into your job, into your kids, into your marriage, every time you serve Jesus and give him the glory, you are accessing that river coming out of the temple of God to bless the nations. You see, God's heart has always been to bless his people And to bless the nations through his people. It's always been his heart. And what he's allowing Ezekiel to see is the fulfilled kingdom, the end game. And here's what I love about the book he takes Ezekiel into this transcendent place and says, Look at all that I'm doing. I'm punishing you now and allowing you to grow now. I'm going to change your heart, I'm creating an eternal temple. It's huge, guys. We think about Christianity like it's just this little, like it's just me and Jesus, and you know I'm just so glad I'm saved. And you know, like, no, you are part of a kingdom that is eternal. You are part of a temple that will, for eternity, have a river flowing out of it that will bless the world. You are part of something huge. The same thing Ezekiel was part of. The same thing that the apostles were part of. The same thing that we see in Revelation. It's all one story. And Ezekiel pulls us up above the weeds and says, look how big this is. Can we live in light of that? Can we serve a big God who's making a big kingdom and make a big impact because of that? We need to widen our scope. Think bigger. God is restoring what? is broken in every little way. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. God, thanks for the book of Ezekiel. I treasure it, Lord, and I didn't like two days ago. (laughs) I'm just so thankful, Lord, for your word and, and how it magnifies you, God, how it makes much of you, how it glorifies you, Lord. I pray that we would love your word because we love you. I pray that we would be impressed by you. I pray that we would witness because we are so excited about you, that people would be able to tell that we're just completely smitten, completely blown away by the size of our God. We wouldn't be able to talk about anything else, Lord. And God, if that's not true, it's simply because we're not looking. So God, I just pray that you would just sweep revival through our church, Lord, as we see that you are doing big things, that you are a big God for your glory, God not for ours. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you save us, that you love us, that you sanctify us, that your spirit is within us, that you've given us a new heart and that you're giving us a new home, Lord. And we just want to go our way worshiping and praising you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you Sunday.